Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Wednesday, January the 25th, 2023. It is currently 8.16 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Sometimes I am perplexed, baffled, and confused about the things within Christianity that we disagree on. Because sometimes I think things are just, I think they're, I think they're so obvious. They're so clear just from a, just looking, just an acknowledgement of reality should lead to an agreement that, that we can see it. We can feel it. We can experience, we can see clearly it's not working that way. So we should all agree that that can't be true. I'll just give you the most obvious example of this. If Christians stand behind a pulpit, And they declare, look, by his stripes we are healed. What Christ did on the cross guarantees physical healing right now here in this life. It's not a matter if it's God's will. It is his will. Jesus and his atonement provided physical healing right now on this earth, right now in the present. All you have to do is believe and it will be yours. If someone stands behind the pulpit and proclaims that, I would think that every Christian, I don't care the denomination, I don't care the translation of Bible they use, I don't care care what church they go to, I don't care if they go to church, don't go to church, I don't care if they've been baptized, not baptized, I don't care what they believe about the Lord's Supper, I don't care about anything. Everyone should be able to go... Well, obviously, that's not true, because if healing is guaranteed, there's people all over the place who are never healed who believe. There are people who die. They're not, they're not resurrected. There's people who come back from war zones with missing limbs. They never get them back. There are people, oh, I mean, clearly, it cannot be guaranteed. It can't be. You think everyone would be, would be able to go, well, that's not true. But guess what? Even though the reality screams... The reality demands that we say that's not true. Millions of Christians believe that exact thing. It's in their 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 doctrinal statements. It's in, the, it's in their confessions of faith that physical healing is guaranteed in the atonement for right here on this earth. We can all agree that physical healing is guaranteed and glorification, right? When we are glorified, we receive a new body, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death, no more tears, Right. But to say that it's guaranteed now when we can look around and go, and many of the people who are preaching it either have high blood pressure, they're wearing eyeglasses, they get sick, and they die. (laughs) Clearly, what we saw with uh, Bethel, you know, when the little girl died, wake up Olive, and they were going to, you know, pray for her resurrection. She wasn't resurrected. Over and over and over and over and over again, we see the failure of that doctrinal system to live up to the reality that we all experience. Now, some people are like, no, 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 no. You can't, you can't look to the reality of the world in which you live. No, 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 no. If the text says it, you believe it, even if everything in reality says that it's wrong. And I, I, 
I understand that principle to some level. Let me make sure I, exp- I, I do understand what they're trying to say, but some things are just so obvious, right? Healing is guaranteed for now. Nobody's being healed. People are getting sick. There are hospitals everywhere with children dying of horrible diseases. There, there are uh, people in the military without arms, without legs. I mean, I can go on and 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 on. And then, and then so many times these supposed healers, they are exposed as being fraudulent and being frauds. So at some point you'd have to go, I th- we have to at least modify our doctrine, right? We would have to at least modify and say, well, it's not guaranteed. You would have to at least modify it to some level, right? But no. So I would think that there should be agreement on that. And I think personally, there should be agreement on this. Let me read. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. This is Paul writing. But I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Let me read that again. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin, For I do not understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. The things I want to do, I don't do, but the things I hate, I do. That is one thing anyone who's been a Christian for any length of time should be able to say, amen. That's reality. That's reality. That we, we all can experience, there's all these situations where we know, look, I know I shouldn't do that, but I, I'm either going to do it, would do it, no, I would do it, or I, I've already done it. Christians everywhere, we struggle with this every single day. The things we want to do, we don't get them done. I want to be holy. I'm never going to be holy as God is holy, even though that's commanded in scripture. I want to love the Lord thy God with all my heart, mind, body, and soul, but I never do so. I never do that. And then there's other sins that the Bible says is a sin, and I hate that. I don't want to commit, but I end up committing it. That's a reality. You would think every Christian would be like, man, that's clearly describing a Christian. That's clearly describing the Christian life because it's just the reality we see around us. Christians like, I don't, I want to do this, but I just don't do it. I don't want to do this, but I end up doing it over and over and over. You would think Christians want to be holy, but they're not. You think Christians would not want to sin, but they sin. I mean, I could just, if we just put it down that way, as a Christian, do you want to love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul? Yes. Do you do that? No, I fall short of that. Do you want to avoid sin? Yes. I hate sin. I don't want to sin. Well, why do you keep committing sin? That is just, is like, I don't even think that this should be debated. I don't even think it's a question. This has to be describing the Christian life because it's the Christian life we literally see all around us. But there are Christians who are like, absolutely not. When you become saved, you were set free from sin. Now they say you're set free from sin and then you just wait for it. You're set free from sin. Wait. Wait. 
wait, you got, you got to give it a little while, wait. And then all of a sudden they'll say, but you're still going to sin and you can't be perfect. Wait a minute. You just said I was set free. If I was set free, but then you're saying I can't be perfect and I'm still going to sin. Clearly I'm not free. Hey, you now, because you're a Christian, you can say yes to God, no to sin, and you can overcome sin. Wait for it. Wait for it. But, 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 you're still going to sin and you can't be perfect. What? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? But there are those who want to try to sell this idea that basically we can stop sinning. Almost want to sell this idea that the sinful nature is gone. But we all know the reality. So you think all Christians should be able to agree, clearly Romans chapter 7 and verses 14 and following is describing the life of a believer. But there are those who say, absolutely not. And this takes, it takes a couple of variations. All right. This takes a couple of variations. Some will say Paul is describing himself before he got saved. That Paul here is to, he's describing himself. And the reason they would say he's describing himself is look at this. For we know that the law is spiritual. Now watch this. But I, Paul uses a personal pronoun. I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin living in me. For I, okay, I, you you can just go through verses 14 to 25 and you, you look how many times a personal pronoun is used. So some will say, well, clearly that's Paul speaking of himself, but it can't be Paul speaking of himself after he was converted. No, 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 no. This is Paul speaking of himself before he was converted. There are some will put forth that idea. Again, I don't know how you could say that because this literally is describing your Christian life and my Christian life. Others, as we have learned, they don't. They say, no, 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 no. Paul's not describing himself. He's using the personal pronoun, but he's pretending to be someone else. He's playing a character. Like for argument's sake, he's like, hey, I'm a, I'm a Jew living under the law, trying to please God under the law, that he's pretending to be something. He, he's playing a character. He's putting on a mask. But either way, this is Paul either describing himself before conversion, or this is supposedly Paul pretending to be someone who is not converted, who is a Jew living under the law. But either way, it's someone being described here who's not a Christian, because according to them, this is not the Christian life. This is not the Christian life. Now, what we've been doing in two live broadcasts, we have been reviewing a podcast episode of Theology in the Raw, where they're talking about why Romans 7 is not talking about the life of a believer, but the life of an unbeliever. Why it's not talking about that. And basically their arguments go something like this. Well, clearly, clearly this can't be Paul referring to himself after he was saved. And the reason we know this is because Origen, the early church father Origen, he didn't think that Paul was speaking of himself here. Uh, Jerome and Erasmus, okay? And the fact that they went with Erasmus 
who will ar- had l- argued with Luther in the bondage of the will that Luther referred to as an enemy of basically God and the church. It was absolutely, it was absolutely crazy to see them basically offer origin, which go look at what origin taught. And I think you would come back and go, Ooh, I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm, I'm looking at something here. I'm looking at here. Uh, yes. Uh, I believe this is the right one. Yes. Uh, can give me something. I'm, I'm verifying that I've got the right one here. I'm just looking. I, I was going to possibly read something about, uh, his, his life. Um, Okay, give me one second. Give me one second. Yeah, okay, yes. All right. Um, yeah, Erasmus. I mean, let me make sure I give you the one. Yeah, well, okay, yeah. That that's he, he was uh born, that's what I was looking for. 1446, and he died on uh, July the 12th, 1536, at the age of 69. Erasmus. And uh, well, yeah. I mean, Luther, we already looked at in the last part, Luther referred to him as an enemy of God, an enemy of the church, an enemy of Christianity. And, and so, so they go to Erasmus, Erasmus, sometimes I want to say Erasmus, Erasmus, if I can say it correctly, Origen and Jerome. Now, this is kind of interesting because, uh, oh, that's what I was going to show you. That's what I was going to show you. If you did not know, because I don't think some people know this about Erasmus. If you did not know, Erasmus... Uh, was a Dutch philosopher, are you ready for this, and a Catholic theologian, okay, as a Catholic priest. So Erasmus is arguing with Luther, but Erasmus is coming at it from a Catholic perspective. Now remember, Erasmus, if he's coming at it from a Catholic perspective, what do we know then about his view of justification? That he believes justification is the infusion of righteousness not a salvation by imputed righteousness. So why would you look to Erasmus to tell me how I should interpret Romans chapter 7? Because they would be like, well, no, a justified person has been infused with righteousness, so this could not be describing them. They, 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 would, they would come at it from a different perspective. So the fact that they pointed to Erasmus, Origen, and Jerome, oh, they also pointed to John Wesley, which then you have someone who's very much in kind of the Arminian camp, right? Uh, oh, you could, po- I know they would probably not be Pelagian, but there's kind of a, an aspect of Pelagianism there. Maybe not, not full pure Pelagianism, but clearly a semi-Pelagianism. Maybe that's not completely fair, but okay. But the point is they picked people who come from a very specific theological line to say, see, Paul in Romans 7 can't be describing himself as a Christian because that's not Christianity. How do we, and, and look at who agrees with us, Origen, Jerome, Erasmus, and John Wesley. <laughs> now, they do acknowledge in this uh, episode that we've been reviewing that Luther, see, that Augustine, Luther, Calvin, um, I see, who else did they uh, put forth? I can't remember who else they put forth, but they at least acknowledge that Augustine... <laughs> Luther and Calvin disagreed and believed Paul is describing himself as a Christian who is struggling with sin. Now, their argument was that Augustine, that Luther, 
and that Calvin wasn't approaching the text exegetically, that they were reading their theology into it. But wait a minute, I guess Origen, Jerome, and Erasmus wasn't reading their theology into it. It, it was so unfair. And so it was just crazy. And, and basically their perspective is this. If you say Paul is describing himself in Romans 7, 14 through 25 as a believer, it's because you have a, and I, now I'm going to overemphasize this. I'm going to do this for emphasis sake. It's because you have a low, 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 low view of humanity and of the human nature. You have a low view. And see, the way to really understand Romans 7 is you need to have a higher view of human nature. A view of human nature that wouldn't mean that you're not enslaved to sin, that you can just not sin. Now, they may save that higher nature till after conversion, but they, they almost want to give a perspective that after conversion, your depraved nature is gone. They've not gone so far to say that, but they've clearly indicated that by saying that after conversion, you can overcome sin, you can say no to sin, and basically you can stop sinning. At the same time, they still tried to acknowledge that you still sin. So they didn't really explain how you can be free and overcome. But yes, I, th- there was no explanation, but it's it's been maddening. And again, what's so frustrating is anyone who reads Romans 7 is going to be like, that's me. The things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I want to do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I don't want to do, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I want to do, I don't do. Or if you can follow that. And it, it's so exhausting. It's so exhausting. It really is. It really is. So I, we've got 38 minutes of this audio to finish reviewing. There's a part of me that doesn't want to even finish, but I'm going to finish it because I want them to be able to present their perspective as clear as they can. And I apologize for saying Erasmus instead of Erasmus. I do apologize for that. Um, I don't know why I was, I don't know why I was doing that. But once I looked it up, once I looked up his birth date, then I remember. But the main thing I want you to know, Erasmus, Catholic, Catholic priest, You're going to, so now, now we're going to turn to Origen and a Catholic priest for our interpretation of scripture. I like, I don't even understand why they, but hey, Luther and Cal- Luther who left Roman Catholicism, he's wrong. Calvin, who wasn't, he's wrong. So all the non-Catholics are wrong. Okay. Well, I don't know where you want to put Origen, but okay. But I mean, Origen, obviously major issues with his teachings, major issues. Major issue, I, and I doubt that we'd even agree with Jerome on many aspects, many aspects of things. But I just find it, I find it just somewhat. It's almost hilarious to me that they can't see that. I wonder why this side goes with the. They have a clear theological bit, and I listen, and I'll be more than willing to admit the reason Luther and Calvin went a different direction is they have a different uh, uh, a theological bent. We can all agree with that. So, all right, let's let's just jump back into this and see where it goes. I'm sorry we went 19 minutes on my opening monologue, but it wouldn't be, I mean, aren't you sometimes just like, we can't agree on that? Like, 
You read Romans 7, everybody's like, well, that's me. But nope, we, we can't even agree on that. It's just, sometimes it's maddening. But here we go. Back to this episode of Theology and the Raw, and whether they're basically trying to explain why the position of saying that Paul is describing himself as a believer is wrong is, is now they're basically arguing it's because we will abuse it. And we will say, well, see, the reason we sin is because we have a sinful nature, and so we excuse our sin. But acknowledging sin is not excusing sin. Now, someone may do that, and someone may abuse it, but abuse of truth does not negate the truth that is being abused. It only negates the abuse of the truth. But that's a pretty just basic rule of logic, but okay, here we go. So they just kind of appeal to this Adamic nature that, well, we're just all in Adam, we can't do good, and we, we forget that Paul says that Adam's part of the old that's dead and gone and it's passing away. And now we put on Christ instead. But yeah. Right there, another hint of kind of like the old nature is gone. Well, if the old nature is gone, then we should be able to be sinless. So on one hand, they use this language that you would have to say sinlessness is not only possible, it's plausible. But then they always walk it back real quick. And go, but, 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 you, I mean, you're still going to sin. You can't do it perfectly. Well, then which is it? It just, it, it, it resonates so well. And uh, one of the, I'm working on a book right now. And the, the, the book series is to take what is commonplace in scholarship and try to bring it to the busy pastor and student to let them know that if you are in Romans 7, you don't have to stay there. Um, Romans 8 is right next door. Well, let's speak of Romans 8. Let's, let's get into some of the exegetical arguments. So well, let's start with arguments for your view for our view i guess the the, the yeah. correct the correct way <laughs> <laughs> i usually don't yeah speak so boldly on theology yeah. i'm gonna be an exception <laughs> for this episode um why does Romans seven uh not describe a believer and does mm-hmm. describe somebody who is not yet in christ good yeah well again going back to origin and erasmus and jerome and wesley uh, if, if you start in Romans chapter five, because uh, most scholars think that Romans five through eight is yeah. kind of a, a good segment. And uh, Paul is talking about the justification that we have. He goes to Romans five, 12 uh, through 21, where he's talking about what Adam did. And then he says, but guess what? There's a new Adam in town and his name is Jesus. And he had this obedience and his obedience leads to righteousness and grace. And you can serve either sin or you can serve obedience. And uh, then does his, does his obedience lead to an imputed righteousness or an infused righteousness? Because if you're going with an infused righteous argument, I don't even care about Romans 7 anymore. We don't even, we don't even agree on justification. So do you believe that Christ's obedience is imputed to my account? And so it leads to righteousness because I am declared to be righteous even though I'm not righteous. He brings this great question that I think we need to make sure we use as lenses when we come to Romans 6 and 7. Shall I continue in sin so that grace may abound? And Paul says, Meganoita, no, 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 no. We don't talk about Bruno. We don't talk about that. Um, and so he sets up this, this rhetorical question. Uh, since we're under grace, uh, do we continue to sin so that grace may abound? And Paul says no. And so in Romans 6, um, Paul is going to underline. He's going. And here's the question. How do we no longer continue in sin? I mean, this is just a basic theological, this is a basic practical question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? We shouldn't. 
Well, then how should, how do we stop continuing in sin? I mean, that's a very important question. How do we stop sinning? We should not continue in sin that grace may abound. Well, how do we stop sinning? To continue in sin means that we keep sinning. We keep sinning and we keep sinning. Do you keep sinning? Now, remember, if we define sin as any lack of conformity to God's holy law, which is perfect, and that lack of conformity can be externally, it can be internal, it can be in word, it can be action, it can be in deed, it can be in thought. Any lack of conformity to God's standard, whether in word, deed, thought, internal or external, is sin that I, I once again will say, you continue in sin. Let me say it again. I'll give you three scriptures. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be holy as God is holy. All of those are commanded in scripture. So do you do that? Someone just said, uh... <laughs> okay, someone was talking about the fact that he quoted this song. We don't talk about Bruno. Okay, yeah, all right, yes, that that I, that I guess that was funny. I did. I was I was so frustrated by other things that I ignored ignored it. But yes, it was funny. All right, but okay, laugh at my jokes, not their joke. Okay, I'm joking. I'm joking. All right, but here we go. This is very important. I completely agree that Paul asked the question: Should we continue in sin? And the answer is no. God forbid we should not. But then the next question is, how do you stop continuing in sin? Or I could even rephrase it. Do you continue in sin? Come on, as a Christian, do you continue in sin? Yes or no? Now, I've already given you a good definition of sin. Any lack of conformity to God's holy law and thought, word, and deed in action or in thought and, 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 and external, internal, thought, word, deed, all of those things. Any lack of conformity, you're in sin. Do you love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul? No, you never do that. So you're continuing in sin. Are you holy as God is holy? No. So you continue in sin. Do you love your neighbor yourself? No. So you continue in sin. So do you continue in sin? We're not to continue in sin, but do you? That's the question. Well, I'm going to answer the question, yes and no. And one way we do continue in sin, that's practically. But in Christ Jesus, in our position, we don't continue in sin. That's the only answer for this. Either you've got to teach sinless perfection. Look, you can't say, well, we won't continue in sin, but we can't be perfect. Well, if I can't be perfect, then I'm continuing in sin. The lack of perfection is a perpetual state of sin, right? I mean, I don't know how, how Christians play weird games with this stuff, right? Well, I mean, no, I mean, I mean, I'm sinning, but I'm not sinning. I mean, I'm not committing that sin, but I mean, I'm sinning. I mean, well, I'm not sinning, but I mean, I'm not perfect, but I mean, I'm, are you continuing in sin? Yes or no? And uh, one way we're not continuing sin. Positionally, I don't continue in sin. Positionally, you know what I am? Perfect, righteous, holy, obedient. In practice, you know what I am? A sinner with a sinful nature who continues in sin in practice, so either in thought, word, and deed, by what I do and by what I leave undone. You, 
You can read it any way you want. You can read it as, oh, no, we're, we're, we no longer continue in sin. You know why we no longer continue to sin? Because we've died. And since we're dead, we, we, no, we, we no longer have to sin. Well, if that's the case, if we're dead and we no longer have to sin, then perfect Christians is not only possible, it is probable. In fact, it should be expected. But there aren't any, meaning we all continue in sin. The underscore repetition, superfluous, uh, over and over and over again, sin is no longer the boss of me. Sin is no longer the boss of you. And so he uses syllogism. kind of. Sin is no longer the boss of you. Sin is no longer the boss of me. So if now I'm the boss, then I can say no to sin. Therefore, perfection is not only possible, it's probable. <laughs> now, in one way, sin is no longer the boss over me in my position, because in my position, I am perfect. But in practice, sin still dominates me. You say, no, 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 no. It doesn't dominate you. Yes, it does. You know how I know it dominates you? Can you be perfect? If you say, no, I can't be perfect. Then it's controlling you. You're not controlling it. If it limits what you can do, you can't be perfect, then it's limiting you. It's the boss. Because you could just look at sin, I'm going to be perfect, and you could be perfect. Nobody's able to pull that off. Of an Aristotelian rhetorical device where he says, okay, Jesus Christ died to sin once and for all. With me, right, right? We died with Christ through baptism. With me, right, right? Um, therefore, we are dead to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, Paul realizes that uh, this is not a pie-in-the-sky, mawkish, saccharine idea. Sin is still knocking on the door. Sin is still coming at us, but it no longer has to reign inside of us. And so Wesley says, yeah, yeah, sure, sin remains, but it doesn't reign in our life anymore. All right, sin remains, but it doesn't reign. Now, just, just, just think this out logically. If it remains... <laughs> And it won't leave, then it rains. Okay, right? right. Like it, it's raining if I can't make it go away. If I'm like sin, leave and never come back. No, I'm staying right here. I'm going to remain. Why are you remaining? I'm in charge. If it's the if if sin will not, if the sin in me will not let me be perfect, keeps me from perfection, then it is raining because it has more control than me. If it can limit what I want to do, if it can limit what I'm able to do, it's the reigning controlling force. It's like a kid saying, my parents don't tell me what to do. I can do what? Oh, wait, wait, my phone's ringing. Okay, mom, I'm, I'm on my way. Hey, they don't tell me what to do. Well, I want you to know my parents don't. I'm in charge. I'm the boss. All right, I got to go. Well, why do you got to go? Well, my, my mom just called me. But I thought you were in charge. I mean, well, I mean, look, look, she's there, but she doesn't rain. I rain. Well, if you rain, stay out all night. I can't stay out. I got to go. No, no. If you're in charge, tell her no. Well, I can't do that. Everyone, we would laugh at that. We'd be like, give me a break. Okay, clearly <laughs> you're not in charge. So how can we say, so they, they immediately have to back up. Whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. Remember, he says that we're, we're, we, we died with Christ, so we're dead to sin. Well, if we dead to sin, now, then he's like, well, oh, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, 
sin's going to remain. It's just not going to reign. But he's already said that we're the boss of it. If we're the boss of it, then how can it, and it's not raining, why is it still remaining? I can't boss it out. I can't tell it to leave. And if it's there and it's limiting me, then it's still raining by any meaningful definition of the word. It's no longer on the iron throne. Um, instead, it's uh, in the trench that's coming after us. Um, and so. Okay, it's no longer on the throne. It's in the trench. All right, now I want to make sure we understand this. So sin has been replaced. Sin is no longer on the throne. Who's on the throne? Is God on the throne? If God is now on the throne and sin is not on the throne inside of me, God can't get me to perfection? <laughs> what is that? Hey, God, his sin has been dethroned. God now takes the throne. But I'm sorry, you still can't be perfect. I'm sorry, still sin is still uh, remaining. Wait a minute. If God is on the throne, why is sin remaining? Why wouldn't God just drive it out? Paul, if you read Romans 6, Paul is going to say it louder for the people in the back so they can hear that sin is no longer our master. And he says uh, that's who we used to be. And now we want to make Sin is no longer our master. Again, I completely agree with this positionally. Positionally, he's not my master. He's not the boss. Sin doesn't even remain in my position. I'm 100% holy in my position. I'm a new creature in Christ. All the old is gone and everything is new. Clearly, that's not true practically because even they admit sin remains. If sin remains, then I'm not a new creature and the old is not gone and not everything has become new. If you say sin remains, then not everything is new, okay? Right? So clearly, that has to be speaking of my position. Practically, sin still is present. And not only is it present, ladies and gentlemen, it has a controlling nature. Why do I know this? Because if you say, I, you can't be perfect, you can't stop sinning completely, then that is limiting what I can do and controlling what I can do. And that which limits and controls is reigning. Sure, uh, that uh, we uh, walk under obedience and righteousness. And then we get to Romans chapter. We walk in obedience and righteousness. We walk in obedience. Do you walk in obedience? Because I bet you sin every single day. So now is walking in obedience. We walk in obedience and righteousness. I walk in obedience and righteousness in my position. And you know how I walk in obedience and righteousness? Because the righteousness and obedience of Christ has been imputed to my account. Do they, do they even believe in an imputed uh, justification, an imputed, imputed righteousness for justification? So far... We're 27 minutes in and they've not even alluded to that. They've only quoted theologians or at least or, uh, 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 Erasmus would have denied it. Chapter seven, verse one, and Paul seems to get Phoebe to look at the, Phoebe's one who's reading the letter, right? To the Romans, so maybe turn to the audience uh, who have more, uh, uh, love the law a lot. And says, now we're going to speak to those of you who know the law. Um, the law here, uh, almost all scholars believe that Paul's talking about the Mosaic law. Right. Um, and we know in Paul's churches that uh, this was often an issue 
of uh, what do we do with the law. Paul said some quite nasty things about the law. But if you look at Romans 6, 1 through 12, and Romans 7, uh, 1 through 6, um, he kind of has the same type of argument. Um, although here he's going to use a parable. C.H. Dodd, a New Testament scholar, uh, thinks that the parable is awesome, uh, awful, thinks that Paul just does a really bad job when it comes to parables. But he says, okay, there's this woman. Uh, she's married to a man, and she gets with another man while she's married. That would be unlawful, right? But what happens if the husband dies? Now she is free to be with another man. So here he switches the parable and says, but guess what? We, as the woman, have died so that now we can belong to a new man, and that new man is Jesus Christ. And so in verses 5 and 6, before he gets into this soliloquy and monologue of the wretch, um, he says um, that, so now we no longer walk according to the old way of the law that leads to sin, 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 flash, 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 death, death, death. But instead, we walk into the newness of the Spirit. And most New Testament scholars think that this is kind of the outline. So uh, verse 5. And I love how you just keep saying most New Testament scholars, most New Testament scholars, most New Testament scholars. 51%, and these New Testament scholars, I would love to know their theological background because your early scholars, to prove your point, happen to be origin, a heretic, or at least heretical teaching, no way to get around it. Erasmus, a clear heretic. Jerome, we could get into, and then John Wesley, who clearly has an an Arminian viewpoint. So clearly, the older people you point to had a a theological bent, but he keeps saying, most New Testament scholars, most New Testament scholars, most New Testament scholars. Well, first, how are you defining a scholar? Second, what is their theological background that these scholars are approaching the text from? Inquiring minds would like to know. But it's it's a it's a debate technique. It's like, hey, 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 you better listen to us because most scholars agree with us. Most scholars are, hey, Origen agrees with us. Hey, Jerome agrees with us. Erasmus agrees with us. John Wesley agrees with us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Augustine, Luther, and Calvin, they disagree. But I mean, come on. They weren't actually exegeting the text. They were they were just reading their theology into it. So just be, just don't worry about Luther, Calvin, and Augustine. Go with Origen, Jerome, and Erasmus. Okay, that's their great. Whoa! And now, now he's playing the little trick that most scholars, most scholars. Uh. uh okay. No. Okay. Uh, okay. Someone just said, "Wait." Uh, they're they're using most New Testament scholars to support him. Yes, they they. Uh, I don't know if you missed it in the last episode and at the beginning of this episode. They started transitioning to basically saying that most New Testament scholars, most modern New Testament scholars, agree with their position. That that, that he did never stated who uh, he didn't say where he didn't give me numbers. But yeah, that's kind of now where they've kind of gone to. But you're you're right at the beginning. They kind of act like that they had this very unique position, but then they started transitioning to basically most New Testament scholars. And so the book that he's writing on Romans 7 is supposed, the, the, the goal of the book, and he stated this in the last episode, and we heard a little bit of it in this one. He made the statement that the goal of this series of books he's writing is that he he can show you by on the basis of modern day scholarship that most scholars can 
get, keep you from looking at Romans 7 the incorrect way. So he's going to bring that scholarship in. But okay, that's fine. Who are the scholars? I want to know their theological backgrounds. Are they semi-Pelagian? Are they Pelagian? Are they Arminians? Well, of course they're going to look at it from a different perspective. Of course. It doesn't prove anything. So yeah, that, that, yeah they, they definitely seem to, at first it was kind of like, we're unique. And then slowly but surely it's kind of like, but we've got the, the, the majority of scholars. The old way of the law mm-hmm. is going to be fleshed out, um, enumerated, unpacked in 7, 7 through 25. And then the, the verse six is uh, what Paul really wants to talk about and move the believer yeah. from the Romans seven to Romans eight uh, and walking according to the spirit. And so that context really reframes uh, Romans seven. And then we get to. Yeah, we've been in Romans seven, six, Paul says, but now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. Yes, we've been released from the law as the since the law is no longer the basis of our righteousness. What's the basis of our righteousness is Christ obedience to it. Our basis of our righteousness is not our obedience to the law, but Christ obedience to the law. That's the whole point of imputed righteousness. Like at some point here, you got to talk about imputed righteousness, don't you? Don't you? I mean, don't you have to at least acknowledge there is clearly a difference between my just even if you don't want to use position and practice, even if you want to throw out those words, let me say it this way. Is there not a difference between me in relation to to the imputed righteousness and me in relation to my own righteousness? Is there not a distinction between those two? Now, if you believe that I'm saved by an infused righteousness, then everything about me is only based on that infused righteousness and the righteousness that shows up in my life. But if you believe in an imputed righteousness, you have to draw a distinction between you can say whatever your name is, whatever you just throw out your name tonight, whatever your name is, there is a difference when it comes to you in relation to imputed righteousness because you're perfect, righteous, and holy. Versus you in relation to your practical righteousness, because your practical righteousness will never be righteous enough, and you are continually, perpetually in sin all the time. And thought, word, and deed, whether external, internal, you're in sin. You, you, if we can't make if we are not coming to an agreement on that distinction then all theological conversation is over. Now, they haven't completely denied imputed righteousness. I'm just shocked that they haven't even acknowledged that there is a difference to any believer in their 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 relationship to imputed righteousness and then their relation to their everyday life. If they, they, they've yet to acknowledge that and we're 28 minutes in. Now, maybe they're going to, but at this point, I'm getting really nervous. Romans 7, and Paul brings in this rhetorical device where he asks a question again, and he answers that question. And so, uh, is the law sin? Now, again, Paul said some really nasty, mm-hmm. bad, horrible, seemingly bad, uh, uh, bad things about the law. In uh, chapter 6, uh, chapter 5, the law sli- slips in the back door in order to increase trespasses. Um, he had even said in Romans 7 before that the law uh, stirs sin up. That's mm-hmm. one thing for the law week before sin, but it's another thing for it to stir it up. And, it's- and law does stir it up. Now, here's the question. Why does law stir up sin? Why does law stir up sin? Anybody got a good idea? Why does law stir up sin? 
You know why? Because guess what's inside of you and me? A sinful nature. And guess how it reacts to law, the law of God? It rebels. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a proof of our depraved nature, which doesn't go away in salvation. It's not just there, but look at what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, after the, where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where is your victory? Um, he talks about how uh, the stinger of sin and death is the law. And, and then look yeah. at 2 Corinthians 3. Paul seems to say that the law leads to death. Anytime the law is proclaimed, uh, it, it blinds people so they can't see the truth of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so here he begins to defend the law. And a lot of New Testament the law condemns, the law condemns, the law condemns. Now he's going to go back to a lot of New Testament scholars, a lot of New Testament. He never gives us numbers. It's just these anonymous lot of, a, 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 anonymous most of, lot of, most of. Scholars think that Romans 7, uh, we're so vain, we probably think it's about us, um, but really it's about the law and Paul's defense, not just of the law, but his vindication of his theology of the law. And so he asked two rhetorical questions that helps us follow his his train of thought, 7-7 um, and 7-12. Is the law sin, and did the law um, intend to bring death? And so really what Romans 7 is about is this is about the law, and then someone who connects with the law. I'll stop there, see if you have any questions or comments. Well, or first of all, that's the first time I've heard you say you're so vain without singing. Um, so that's a... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, have a I have a sore throat this morning. So you're off I'm, your I'm game. Very audience. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I do have some questions. So um, first of all, you mentioned that the the, analog the marriage analogy, if I, I remember looking at this years ago when I used to read Romans, um, <laughs> when you do your PhD on the book of Romans, it kind of steals the joy out of it. Um, so I had to stop. I, I disagree. I went the other way. You I, did? I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All I see is 15 different ways to interpret every single verse when I read it now. So in my devotions, it just doesn't work anymore. Imagine that. Yeah, if you worked on your PhD on Romans, I can tell you, you see now 15 different ways to interpret every verse. Hey, uh, let me give you a secret. There's 15 ways to interpret every verse from Genesis to Revelation. That's been the never-ending drama and frustration and irritation about the history of Christianity. We can't agree on anything. So you got to be very careful when you say, well, the majority says, the majority says, many say, whoa, 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 for every majority you give me, I'll find a majority that goes against your perspective. For every many you give me, I'll, fall, I'll find many who goes against your perspective. And I wonder, maybe we should be very, 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 very careful to go, wait a minute, nobody agrees on this. Now, they've already said that their view is the right view. And he even said that typically he's not so dogmatic, but on this, he'll be dogmatic, that this is the right way. But now he's acknowledging that when he reads Romans, he just sees 15 different ways to interpret it because he knows of all those different interpretations because he did a PhD work on Romans. Anyone, just do any work on Romans. Do verse by verse exegetical work on Romans 7 and then look at all the different views before you preach. You'll be like, oh my goodness, what do I do? So I, I, that's why when there's all this confusion, I like to simplify it. Here's what I know. Christians still sin. Number two, Christians cannot be perfect. 
Number three, Christians cannot completely stop sinning, meaning sinful nature is still active, meaning uh, sinful nature is still present, meaning that there'll be many Christians who the things they want to do, they won't do, and the many things they don't want to do, they end up doing. Oh, wow. That's, oh, yeah, that sounds like what's being described in Romans chapter seven. Oh, wait, wait, I, another absolute fact. If I, if, and I stress if, If we are right, that we are saved by an imputed righteousness, then you have to acknowledge that a Christian and their relationship to imputed righteousness is viewed as a new creature. Old things are gone. Everything is new. They do not sin. They're dead to sin. They're obeyed because they they are viewed through the lens of imputed righteousness. And that is painfully a completely different. It's it's glaringly different than you and a Christian and a Christian in relationship to their own righteousness, which they're going to continue to sin and they're going to fall short. Look, look, you don't even need to get into the fifteen different interpretations. We can just all acknowledge that. You know how we can acknowledge this because Christians still sin. How can we acknowledge this? We've yet to find a perfect Christian. How can we acknowledge this? I've yet to find a Christian who can just stop sinning. So guess what? That means I've now verified that through objective reality. Now, if, now this is where this becomes theoretical. If I do believe in imputed righteousness, then we would logically have to conclude that a person's relationship to imputed righteousness would stand in stark contrast to them, their relationship to practical righteousness because we've already established by the reality of the world that they continue to sin and they can't stop sinning. Therefore, we have some objective facts that they don't want to bring into this yet. Um. Yeah, it's interesting. So the you know, but the but if the husband dies and you're free from the marriage, therefore we've died. So are we the dead husband or are we the wife that's been freed? Is that where the analogy is like? Well, it's yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so something gets convoluted. Something gets clever. I, I kind of follow the, the the other side of it. It's a it's irony. It's a, oh. uh, in traditional irony is a surprise. So we're expecting the husband to die, but instead it's we have died with oh. Christ. It gives us that parallel that we see in Romans six. So Paul's so, being and we the church. Yeah, I think he's trying to be clever, but okay. uh, I often try to be clever, and some, clever, and sometimes it doesn't land uh, there. But we're the ones who have died. This is kind of odd. Hey, Paul's analogy here it kind of falls flat. He didn't really do a good job. Is he writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit or not? Hey, Paul, Paul, your illustration, eh, I give it, I give it a two out of 10. I give it a thumbs down. Your, your, your illustration kind of fell flat. Ugh. Well, wait, is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy, is that, is that illustration, is that come from God? Or is that, il- or is that illustration, what, I am so perplexed here. They literally are speaking of it like just Paul came up with an, like, like, like I'm reviewing a sermon. Like, man, that pastor's sermon, that, that illustration was trash. Like, like, I, I don't understand. I, I don't understand this. All right. Give me a second. I'm opening up the Spreaker app just in case if someone's making comments, I don't want to miss them because the screen will get full over on the computer. And sometimes it shows them, sometimes it doesn't, but I like to always make sure I don't miss anyone who's listening, right? Because it's always good to have someone listening 
when you're sitting in an empty room trying to figure out this very convoluted stuff. Yeah, that 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 they they very much was seem like critical of the, of Paul's illustration, and I just don't know how you can be critical of an ill. I mean, I can understand. Look, put, well, let me let me take that back. I can understand being critical in the sense like I don't like that illustration. That illustration makes no sense. I don't like how the story of Job is written. It bothers me, right? I can understand voicing that, but I don't voice it like, well, because the writer messed up because the writer is supposed to, it's supposed to be written under the, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So I can say, I don't like it because it, how it makes me feel or it confuses me. I'm more than willing to allow a Christian to do that, but you got to be very careful not to make it sound like, well, Paul just messed up in the way he wrote this because if, if this is just Paul's, and not the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then who? Re- why are we even debating it? Well, it's- yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, something gets convoluted. Something gets clever. I, I kind of fall on the, the the other side of it. It's a uh, it's irony. It's um, oh. uh, in traditional irony is a surprise. So we're expecting the husband to die, but instead, it's we have died with oh. Christ. It gives us that parallel that we see in Romans six. So Paul's so, being and we the church. Yeah, I think he's trying to be clever, but okay. uh, I often try to be clever and clever, and sometimes it doesn't land uh, there. But we're the ones who have died with Christ, therefore we can belong to Christ. I want to underscore because for right, uh, basically he tried to make an illustration, but wow, that fell flat. Now, yeah, so basically Paul's illustration fell flat. Now I can understand reading the illustration, going, wait a minute. Paul, what in the world is going on here? I am some, it's convoluted. It's confusing, but I don't blame Paul for it. I blame, I would, I would have to blame God if I believe the scriptures are inspired by God. So either I believe in inspiration or I don't believe in inspiration. I mean, cause I mean, if we're going to start, you know what I could do? Look, we could play this same. Ooh, watch this, watch this, watch this, watch this, watch this, watch this. Hey, this illustration that Paul uses here kind of falls flat. It's kind of convoluted. I don't really understand it. I don't know what he's trying to say here. But you know when what you know what my real problem is? When Paul says this whole thing about, well, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I want to do or the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I want to do, I don't do. Wow. That you know what? Who I don't even know what it, it all fell flat. Well, let's just skip it. We don't even need to worry about it. Well, I mean, why can't I it, why can't I just kind of skip it and say, well, I don't really know. I mean, it just fell flat. You see, Paul, you're saying that Paul was trying to express what it was before salvation. I think he's trying to express what it's like after salvation, but maybe the whole illustration just fell flat. So we don't really know because Paul just kind of messed up in his explanation. I mean, why can't we just use that kind of logic just to go through anything in Romans that doesn't make any, well, I don't know what Paul was trying to say here. He's trying to use some kind of illustration about the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I want to do, I don't do. Yeah, It's kind of convoluted. It just fell flat. Like, is it, is it from God or is it not from God? For me, this was the first time the light bulb went on with reading Romans 7 in light of Romans 8. So you mentioned in passing, I just want to underscore it, that Romans 7, 5, and 6 seems to be a clear outline of Rome, the rest of Romans 7 and 8. So Romans, mm. and if, you're, if you have a Bible, you can look at it or just write it down. Like, look at Romans 7, 5, and I'm saying, and not just me, but lots of scholars, um, Romans 7, 5 is like a summary of the rest of Romans 7, and Romans 7, 6 is like a summary of Romans 8. So let me read Romans 7, 5. Okay, so again, they go back to lot, not just me, lots of scholars, lots of, again, who are these scholars? 
Just lots of scholars, right? I want to know their theological background because I bet you, I know this is shocking, but I bet you their theological background has a, well, will greatly impact how they interpret the text. So, so let me, let me help again, right? Before we read read this, let me help you understand my perspective, right? My perspective is simple. I don't care what the scholars say. I do care, but I don't care as far as this is concerned, right? We can go all day. You can pull up your 50 scholars. I can try to pull up 50 scholars. You can pull up people from uh, early church history. I can pull up people from early church history. And we can just have this debate on, well, I've got 60. Well, I've got 50. I've got 40. I've got 30. You can just go all day. You can try to act like, see, this is so clear. This is so clear. Again, here is my argument. All right, here we go. Are you ready? It's very simple. It's very simple. Christians sin. They will continue to sin. Christians cannot be perfect. Christians cannot stop sinning. Sin is a part of the life of every believer, and it will be till glorification. That is an objective fact. Christians sin and thought, word, and deed, especially if we define sin as any lack of conformity to the holy law of God and thought, word, and deed, whether internal or external. We continue to sin. That's an objective fact, right? There's no question there. You take God's word. Again, I can give you three scriptures. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Christians continually violate that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Christians continue to violate that. Be holy as God is holy. We are in perpetual sin. We are always in sin. No matter how much we don't want to do the wrong thing, we do it. And no matter how much we want to do the right thing, we don't do it. That is a reality. There's no debate over that. Now, over here is where we could have a debate. But as for me, I believe that we are saved by an imputed righteousness, right? Or if I didn't believe that, it would go back to me a Roman Catholic. Okay, so as long as I believe in an imputed righteousness, here, based off that truth, I believe the imputed righteousness, saved by imputed righteousness is is a fact. Based off that fact, here is the reality. Me, in relationship to imputed righteousness, I am perfect, I am holy, I'm obedient, I'm a new creature in Christ, old things are passed away, all things have become new. Me, in relationship to my own life, I am not a new creature, the old is not gone, I still have an old nature, and I still sin, because as I've already established the objective fact to be, we still sin, we can't stop sinning, and we'll never be perfect. However, I interpret Romans 6, 7, and 8 has to take those things into consideration, there you go. <laughs> Someone just said, they've already given you origin. What more could you want? Well, yeah, I know. And they've given me Erasmus. To me, they've given me Erasmus. That, that to me is the dead giveaway because they're approaching this almost from a semi-Pelagian. The, the, will is not, the will is not bound before salvation and the will is not bound after salvation. So I can just will myself to stop sinning. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions operated through the law in every part of us and bore fruit for death. That's that's when we were not in Christ. That's clearly a statement about pre-conversion. But, verse 6, but now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the older old letter of the law. That's just the language in that verse 
ends up being repeated in all just the language in that verse. Oh, you're right. Something dramatically changed in salvation. Hmm, I wonder what could it be? Let me see. I was condemned by the law. The law was what demanded perfection and righteousness. I could not keep that law. I was completely condemned, helpless, hopeless, and there was no anything. But in salvation, I have been freed from that condemnation and I have been freed from the law now being the, the, the requirement for my salvation because guess what? I now have Christ. And guess what? In Christ, I now have perfect righteousness. I now have perfect obedience. The thing that changed is imputed righteousness. And now in Christ, I am completely obedient. In Christ, I am perfect. In Christ, I'm everything the law demands. See, the, 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 the thing is, you either look for this change in a practical way, or you look for these change in a positional way. The, the, the test is, look for it in a practical way. Nobody does it. <laughs> so... All throughout Romans A, even even the but now, I think is that the same in the Greek, but now. Um yeah, is it, it is. Yeah. Romans eight one. So and then he goes on to kind of unpack Ooh, those yeah, two yeah. uh verses. I remember talking to Tom Schreiner about that years ago. This is ten over ten years ago. I'm like, what are you doing with that? Like, this seems like clear, like he's setting this up. This is outline. He's like, Yeah, I don't know, maybe, you know, but it's just, yeah, he wasn't as impressed with it. To me, it's just that was like, oh, this even the very language he's using there is like mm. He, he's setting up how he's going to unpack that language later on. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, you do have this. Uh, I mean, it's so clear. What am I missing? It's not so clear because the reality is we still sin. We still have a sinful nature. We can't be perfect. Sin is still in control because if it wasn't in control, I could be perfect. Sin is still the boss because if it wasn't the boss, I could just say I'm never going to sin again. If, if, if what you're saying is true, then you're absolutely right. The things I don't want to do, I will stop doing. And the things I want to do, I will do. The problem is... <laughs> The things we don't want to do are the things we do, and the things we want to do are the things we don't get done. He's like, it's so clear. Is it? <laughs> Is it? It's clear if I look at my life through the lens of my impute of the imputed righteousness that's been accredited to my account, then you're right. Perfect, holy, and all of those things are true. In between, Pat, I don't want to say in between. It's not in between for Paul, but... Romans 7, 7 through 12, that mm. has its own interpretive things, right? Maybe let's just jump then to Romans 7, what, 14 to 25 or 13? Where do you make the break? Um, 13 to yeah, 25? Yeah, I, I, I usually go to straight to 14, but 13 is fine. We can bring that in there as okay. well, this rhetorical question uh, that Paul is using. Yeah, let's go to the actual passage. What are some things here yeah. um, in the narrow context that show that it's not talking about um, that, it, that it must be talking about a, a, um, a non-believer. Yeah, very good. So in 7, let's go to verse 14 here. Uh, so now just they, they skipped 
Just know they skipped 7 through 13. They skipped it. They skipped it. All right? Because it has its own interpretive thing. Okay, well, that, I mean, that's fine. I'm not going to sit there and criticize. Oh, we're going to have to stop. We're going to have to stop. We're in an hour. Ah. Oh. All right, well, this is a good place to stop. This is a good place to stop. This is a good place to stop. Where did I throw my paper? Okay, I get, I get, when I get fired up, I just start flinging things across the room. You, sometimes you may hear things, but I'll be here. I've got pencils. I just start throwing, I just start throwing stuff. I do. You, I know you're like, that's ridiculous, but it's just the reality of it. There's nobody here. Nobody can get injured. So I just start throwing things. All right, here we go. We're going to stop at the 34, 3408. Romans. I'm going to make sure I got this all circled. We're going to stop there. And the reason we're going to stop there is because now he's going to get down to the, 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 the text. And, and of course, he just gave it away. You know, what, what they can try to word it like, oh, it's a Jew. Paul's pretending to be someone, whatever. They, they can play all those games. When it comes down to it, they believe Romans 7, 14 through 25 is describing an unbeliever. An unbeliever. You read that language and see if that described you as an unbeliever. Now, what they're going to do is they're going to say, what's an unbeliever? But then they're going to try to modify. Go, well, no, no. It's not all unbelievers. It's a Jew living under Old Testament law who's trying. That, that's what they're going to. So then it, oh, so does this doesn't refer to all unbelievers, only some unbelievers? So, so maybe this doesn't have, maybe Romans 7, 14 through 25 has nothing to say about any of us, because unless you're a Jew living under Old Testament law, so maybe this only has application to Orthodox Jews. I, I don't know. I mean, he, but if it, but, but there he just said, referring to an unbeliever, he didn't qualify who the unbeliever is, but you just read it. Just, so at least for argument's sake, you read Romans 7, 14 through 25. And you tell me if that describes uh, the if that language forget forget right now referring to a Jew under the law just just as an unbeliever I there's no way that ever described me as an unbeliever at least for me it never described me as an unbeliever that the things I want to do I don't do and the things I don't want to do I, the things I want to do I don't do and the things I don't want to do I do and I and I, that, no. I, I had no desire to please God or nothing. So, so the, if you limit to just Jews, then you would all, this only is applicable to Jews, Orthodox Jews. So then you, it doesn't have any application. But again, I'm going to stand by my per, way of handling this text. All right. And again, I do apologize because see, this is going to bother me all night. I kept seeing Erasmus. It's Erasmus. Okay. I apologize. Um, yeah. See, little, I will remember every mistake that I made. I will remember every mistake that I made. I'm pointing that out for a reason because I've been a believer long enough and I know every mistake that I've ever made. I know how I fall short to God's standard and thought, word, and deed. I know every day how far I fall short. I know every day in my life that I still sin in thought, word, and deed by what I do and by what I leave undone. I know every day that I sin and internally and externally. I know it. It's a painful reminder. I wish it wasn't so. So I'm going to stand my interpretation of Romans 7 on the following what I believe are objective 
factual realities. Reality number one, Christians will continue to sin continually from the moment of conversion till glorification. That's a fact. Christians cannot be perfect. Christians cannot stop sinning perfectly. They will sin. We are not the boss of sin. We're not free from sin. I know we're not free from sin because if we were free from sin, we could be perfect. Since we cannot, since we cannot be perfect and we can't stop sinning, then we're not completely free. We're not the boss. To say those words are a lie unless you're saying the old nature is completely gone and we can be perfect. No one can be perfect. And if I can't be perfect, that means the sin that in, that's in me controls what I can and can't do. It says, nope, you can't be perfect. That means it's controlling. It doesn't mean I'm in charge. It doesn't mean, it means sin is in charge, right? If, if it says you can't stop sinning, you can't be perfect. It's limiting what I can and can't do. I'm going to continue to sin in thought, word, and deed. That means sin is still the dominant force. That's all true. That's just objective fact. Everyone can see it. Now, that's objective fact. No one can argue that. No one can dispute that unless you want to change the definition of sin or you just want to be living in a land of make-believe. Something else I believe is objectively true, at least objectively true, theologically speaking. I believe we are saved by an imputed righteousness. Now, if that is true, that my justification is not based off anything I can, should, may, would, want to do, don't do, but on a, a perfect righteousness and obedience of Christ that's imputed to my account. If that is true, then this is absolutely objectively a reality. My relationship to that imputed righteousness is that because of that imputed righteousness, in regards to that imputed righteousness, I am a new creature, old is gone, everything has become new. But there is a difference from my relation, my, my relationship to God in light of imputed righteousness, we'll say it that way, versus my relationship and relationship to my practical righteousness. And my practical righteousness in my everyday life I'm not a new creature. Not all things have become new. The old is not gone. The old nature is still there and I still sin. You have to acknowledge both of those realities and how you interpret the book of Romans. Yes, on one sense, I'm set free. I, I live godly. Sin no longer has reign over me. Sin no longer has control. I'm more than a conqueror. All these things are true in, in my relationship to imputed righteousness. But practically, I fall short, I fall short, I fall short, I fall short, I sin, I sin, I sin, I sin. Both realities are true. Christians have struggled for 2,000 years to figure that out. And we're going to continue to struggle because I do agree it's difficult. I do agree at times it feels convoluted. So wait a minute wait a minute, are you saying that just don't worry about sin? No, I'm not saying that. Sin should bother us. We should strive against it. But you know what? No matter how many sins I strive against, I, there's going to be sin in my, there's always going to be sin in my life. Nobody wants to admit that, but there's always going to be sin. Some way, shape, or form, there's always going to be sin. My salvation is the imputed righteousness. And in relationship to that imputed righteousness, I am without sin. I'm holy. I'm perfect. I'm more than a conqueror. 
I, I can I can do all things through Christ which strengthened me positionally because I obey every single law. I do everything that he calls me to do in my position and relationship to the imputed righteousness. That's just, to me, all of the arguments, and, and like they're, 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 they're acting like that they've proved something with their, ex, their exegetical walkthrough of Romans 7. They haven't, they haven't given me anything yet. They gave me two verses and says, see, but there's a change, right? There's a change. The, the uh, imputed righteousness of Christ would explain that change, yet at the same time acknowledge the lack of change in us practically. So therefore, I can have the change and yet have the practical reality that I'm still a sinner. But that's why so far, we're 34 minutes in, they're yet to mention imputed righteousness. They've not even, even acknowledged that that's how we're saved. All right. We'll finish this tomorrow. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. And just remember this. I couldn't get Erasmus right. Erasmus, Erasmus, right. And I, and I stumbled over some other things as well. Just remember, I can't even do a podcast perfectly. Neither can you. Neither can anyone. We're all going to make mistakes, which is just a great illustration of nobody makes it through a day perfectly. When I, if I go to sleep tonight, or if I'm just walking around the house talking to myself all night. The one thing I will know is that I sinned today. That I fell short of God's standard. That I did not love God the way I was supposed to. I did not love others the way I was supposed to. I was not holy as God demands. And that I fell short in thought, word, and deed. That is an absolute fact. I know that tonight. I know that. And I know that there were things I wanted to do I didn't do, and there were things I didn't want to do I did. I know all of that to be factual. But I know this, that in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation because I'm in Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus, I walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. In Christ Jesus, I obey every law. In Christ Jesus, I loved God today with my whole heart, mind, body, and soul. In Christ Jesus, I love my neighbor as myself. In Christ Jesus, I was holy as God is holy. That is how I can go to sleep. Without that imputed righteousness, I'm never going to sleep. I'm just going to stay awake and just continue to confess my sin 24-7 until I stop breathing because I'm afraid that if I do anything else, I, who knows what's going to happen to me. My only hope of security and peace and rest is in the perfect work of Christ. Not in some make-believe idea that now I can stop sinning because I can't. Newsif at yahoo.com newsif at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. God bless.